Listener Production. In this episode of The Briefing, we look at the recent shootings in the US and the constantly failing fight to change gun laws. Now, listen to this. This is the plea from President Joe Biden. He made it on American television last week in the wake of the Uvalde Elementary School shooting in Texas, where 19 students and two teachers were killed by an 18-year-old with an assault rifle. For God's sake, how much more carnage are we willing to accept? How many more innocent American lives must be taken before we say enough, enough? I know that we can't prevent every tragedy, but here's what I believe we have to do. We need to ban assault weapons in high-capacity magazines. So sadly, this whole cycle has become very familiar. We saw it with Sandy Hook under Obama, where the violence leads to grief, which then leads to hope of gun reform, which then turns to disappointment when nothing happens. So what's stopping a ban on assault rifles, as Joe Biden was just talking about? And if that's not possible, what compromise position could Biden strike to get gun reform through the Congress? That is our briefing right after today's headlines with Katrina Blowers. It's Tuesday, June 7. The UK PM Boris Johnson has kept his job for another day, surviving a no-confidence motion, 211 to 148. I can announce that the Parliamentary Party does have confidence. So that's the committee chair, Graham Brady, there. So Boris Johnson has lost a huge amount of credibility, trust and support in the polls because of his handling of Partygate, which is that series of revelations about the events he held at 10 Downing Street during lockdown. Yeah, Johnson was even booed at the Queen's Jubilee over the weekend. But this move, this no confidence vote or the plan for it was already underway. In fact, uh, his colleagues waited for the celebration to end before making the move on the PM. And now that he's survived the vote, it means he can't be challenged again for another year, but it is hard to imagine the discontent will disappear. I think that the problem is that a breach of the ministerial code isn't something that goes away. That senior UK Conservative MP John Penrose. If you could say anything about Boris Johnson, um, he knows how to survive a scandal and he's really pushing (laughs) that to the limit now. The Reserve Bank is expected to raise interest rates again today. Yes, some economists predict it could be by 40 basis points, so nearly half a percent. Normal rate movements are 25 basis points, but they're looking at a bigger one because of uh, the surging inflation. And this would be the RBA's first back-to-back monthly increase in 12 years. So what a 40 basis point rise means in real terms is if you've got a $500,000 mortgage and you've got 25 years left to pay it off, you'll be coughing up an extra $106 a month. So that's a fair whack. Yeah, so you'll hear about this announcement at two o'clock this afternoon. Then you'll see lots of articles about um, what this means for homeowners and the state of the economy. The backstory is here that they dropped rates to 0.10% during the pandemic and said that it would stay there until 2024. And then all of a sudden, as we came out of lockdowns, uh, supply bottlenecks became increasingly Mm. problematic and prices started jacking up. And this is one of the only ways they have to deal with it, even though jacking up rates normally only impacts demand side inflation, which is uh, not really what's happening here. So it's a very interesting economic problem the Reserve Banks have all around the world. 
PM Anthony Albanese is spending a second day in Indonesia meeting the President Joko Widodo. Yesterday, they rode bikes together through the palace gardens, a bit of a symbol of their shared humble beginnings. Yeah, they discussed China's rise, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, greater Indo-Pacific cooperation, as well as greater economic and investment ties. And Anthony Albanese is also pledged to go to the G20 summit to be held in Bali in November. It wasn't uh, entirely clear whether he would go or not because Russian President Vladimir Putin has said he will attend. In terms of why I'll be attending is that I'm focused on sitting with President Widodo, not sitting with President Putin. Uh, It is in Australia's interest to have good relations uh, with our Indonesian friends. Yes, and it sounds there like our Indonesian friends suggested that we should be there, even though uh, the Ukrainian ambassador said that we should boycott the event. The submarine saga marches on. Defence Minister Richard Marles believes Australia won't be able to build its first nuclear submarine by the previous government's deadline of 2038. That's when the current Collins-class subs are expected to expire. Yeah, so he's accepted that we might need an interim fleet, so it continues to be pretty messy, this whole submarine situation. My mind is really open because it needs to be in order to deal with what is the capability gap that has arisen. That's our Defence Minister Richard Miles speaking on the ABC there. So last year, the Morrison government dumped a $90 billion deal with France, which made France very unhappy. That deal was to build a conventional fleet of submarines. Yeah, so we jumped into this deal with the US and Britain, um, became known as the AUKUS partnership to build these nuclear-powered submarines. But the plan lacked a bit of detail, and now we're learning I guess more about the timeline and how that might be coming up short as well. So watch this space. All right, Katrina, we'll catch you later. Um, We're talking gun laws in the US and whether there's any way President Biden can get around the roadblocks. Hello, it's Antoinette Latouf here. So... Mass shootings are as American as apple pie. Okay, it's not exactly something you want to spruik on a postcard, but here's the thing. 45,000 people died from gun injuries in 2020. 45,000? That is... That is such a shocking number. I know it's crazy, Tom. And now President Joe Biden seems determined to do something about gun reform. And he, of all people, would know how hard it is to make change. He was vice president under Obama when he tried and failed to change the gun laws after Sandy Hook. When Congress failed to do anything in the aftermath of Sandy Hook was probably the angriest I ever was during my presidency. I was disgusted and appalled by the inaction. Yeah, so let's find out what he's up against this time around, 10 years later, and whether there are any small changes he could potentially make that would actually get through the Senate. Farrah Thomason is the US correspondent for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, and she's been following this closely there in Washington. Farrah, thank you so much for joining us. Is there any indication that this latest round of gun violence, death and grief will end any differently to Sandy Hook or Parkland in 2018? There's definitely a shift in a desire for change, but whether it amounts to tangible reform is a different story. Um, I guess there can't not be a desire, though. I mean, I was in Buffalo about three weeks ago when we saw an 18-year-old gunman inspired by New Zealand's Christchurch massacre drive three hours from his home to a supermarket in a 
predominantly black neighbourhood and opened fire on random strangers. I mean, that incident itself was enough to shock the hell out of you. It killed 10 people, another three were injured, and the pain in that community was absolutely palpable. But as if that wasn't enough, 10 days later, another 18-year-old drove to a school in uh, Uvalde, South Texas, you know, killing 19 kids and two teachers in what we know is now the worst school mass shooting we've seen since Sandy Hook back in 2012. The common thread in all of these cases is the easy access to AR-style semi-automatic rifles. And there is this general sense that after Parkland, after Sandy Hook, after Las Vegas, it goes on and on and on that list, enough is enough. So I think there is a genuine sense of something having to give and a desire for change. But as I said, whether that will result in tangible reform is a different story altogether. So is most of the focus on these particular weapons and stopping or restricting access to assault rifles? And and is it clear that that would make a huge difference to the number of lives lost? Look, a lot of the focus is obviously on the idea of banning assault weapons, but there are other sort of reforms that are being looked at as well. Um, Banning assault weapons obviously is a huge deal in a country like America where the Second Amendment is a fiercely guarded right, the right to bear arms. It's actually happened here before. In 1994, a series of shootings in Stockton, California. The Clinton administration at that time did actually ban assault weapons in America and the number of mass shootings actually went down. But the law expired, unfortunately, in uh, 2004 under George W. Bush because Congress didn't want it renewed. Biden and the Democrats now, somewhat optimistically, want to revive that bill. Now, obviously, that's a big ask. So if that doesn't happen, what they've said is do some basics, expand background checks. Now, what does that mean? At the moment, you can pretty much walk into a licensed dealer in America and you can buy a gun with a pretty limited background check. It's not exactly comprehensive, but there is a big loophole and that's because federal law only requires background checks when the gun seller's a licensed dealer. So in other words, unlicensed private sellers where you can, you know, go to a a gun seller online or at at a gun show they don't require background checks and that can have devastating consequences. The other thing that the Dems are now looking at is red flag laws. That allows police to seize weapons from certain people if they exhibit signs of being dangerous to themselves or others. That could involve people with mental illness or people with a history of domestic violence. A number of states already have those laws, you might note, New York, New Jersey, but this would give greater consistency by, um, I guess, getting the feds to provide states with incentives to introduce those laws if they haven't already. It's really hard to fathom from an Australian perspective, given how swiftly John Howard responded following the Port Arthur massacre, like why exactly it is so hard to get these reforms through the Senate, even when recent polls show that even 53% of Republican supporters want stronger gun laws. So what's the issue? It's really hard for Australians to fathom because it's all common sense to us, right? And and I reflected the other day about the fact that, you know, Joe Biden, he's one of the most powerful men in the world. But when it comes to gun violence, he's almost powerless. Why is that the case? As I mentioned, politics and process. America, as we all know, has an incredibly powerful gun lobby. Um, it influences a lot of the debate by funding and supporting candidates who back the right to bear arms. Now, to give listeners a bit of a perspective around that, gun groups spent, you know, I think $22 million on lobbying last year alone, and that's more than five times the amount of uh, money that was spent by gun control groups. So the biggest gun lobby group, as we know, is the NRA. I mean, I was in Houston, Texas, just three days after the Evalde shooting, where the NRA held a massive conference, which basically showcased 14 acres of guns and gear. 
and where politicians line up one after the other to talk about the importance of the Second Amendment, knowing how influential these guys are to their political fortunes. The other thing, obviously, is process. Biden is beholden to an evenly split Senate. So you've got 50 seats that are held by the Democrats. You've got 50 seats that are held by Republicans. And Vice President Kamala Harris has the deciding vote if there's a tie. So... There's that, but there's also a process called the filibuster rule, which essentially requires what's called a supermajority of 60 votes in the Senate to advance most legislation. So breaking that down, unless Democrats can find an extra 10 votes, any gun bill that makes it to the chamber after passing the House of Reps is ultimately doomed. What's the logic of the people who'd be opposing any reform? How do they trade off this tragic loss of life particularly of students in schools versus the rights of gun holders? What's their argument? I guess the argument is that the Second Amendment is a constitutional right. It's written into the Bill of Rights and they would argue that as an American, you should have the right to be a responsible law-abiding citizen whereby if somebody is attacking you or your family, you have the right to defend them. But you're absolutely right. It doesn't quite make sense in the context of all of these shootings uh, to be trading off innocent lives constantly time and time again. There is also, I guess, a glimmer of hope as we said, there there is that sort of brick wall of a Senate rule and the filibuster. But, you know, they are, I guess, some parties, to some extent, some of the politicians are attempting to make a bit of a deal. A couple of bipartisan groups, for example, have formed to discuss a way forward. One of those groups involves Democrat Senator Chris Murphy. Some of your listeners might recall uh, a couple of weeks ago in the wake of the Uvalde shooting that he pretty much went viral by giving mm. a really impassioned speech on the floor of the Senate where he basically said, what are we here for? What are we here for? Do something. What are we doing? Just days after a shooter walked into a grocery store to gun down African-American patrons, we have another Sandy Hook on our hands. What are we doing? Our kids are living in fear every single time they set foot in the classroom because they think they're going to be next. What are we doing? Chris is the representative of the electorate where Sandy Hook Elementary, uh, the massacre took place there 10 years ago, and he's been begging for reform for years. And while the Senate sort of reaches for a deal, the House is moving forward with its own gun safety package, which we'll hear more about sort of this week in Congress when it returns after a bit of a, a recess. And that package will look at bills to raise the minimum age, because as we know, here in America, you can be 18 and uh, you can't even buy booze in this country at that age, but you can go and buy a uh, semi-automatic style rifle. You know, as I said, the Second Amendment has been a fiercely defended right for many, many, many years. And uh, that seems to be their justification, the fact that you can't punish law-abiding citizens for the uh, actions of a minority, but something clearly has to give. But would they acknowledge that banning assault rifles would reduce the number of deaths? Or is there even an argument that that wouldn't change the amount of killings? I think there's an acknowledgement that, you know, the common thread seems to be access to uh, some of these assault rifles, but whether they have the political will to actually do something about it in the face of such an influential lobby group essentially funding their pockets and threatening to primary against them during election battles is a different story altogether. There does sort of seem to be from some Republicans I've spoken to a sense that, well, you know, it's not going to do much at all by changing these laws. I mean, it's a really difficult debate and and a lot of stumbling blocks, but we'll see where it plays out this week. So Farah, you've done a wonderful job explaining all of the barriers and pressures against gun reform currently being considered by the Biden administration. What do you think is most likely to have success? 
I mean, obviously banning assault weapons is probably a very big bridge too far. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the very least, expand some of these background checks. The fact that you can walk into an unlicensed dealer and go on the internet and actually purchase some of these firearms quite easily without any checks whatsoever is, is utterly ridiculous. Increasing the minimum age as well seems like a, a no-brainer to me. It's a really complex political game, isn't it? Each time there's a moment like this where it it's all being considered again and there's a lot of grief and more of a motivation to change the laws that you could potentially change one tiny thing at a time. Do you think there is a long-term strategy here from the Democrats truly understanding the art of compromise? I think there is, whether it's a long-term strategy, I mean, I guess there's a sense that something has to be done and, and I think Biden knows that the window of opportunity is quite limited because in a news 24-hour news cycle, the uh, the caravan will eventually move on until the next time. And we've been here before. Um, but the fact that we've had three mass shootings, might I say, these are the only ones that have actually hit the headlines in such a way. There have, in fact, been 200 and I think 33 mass shootings this year alone. And Uvalde was, I think, the, uh, you know, it was one of many uh, school shootings that actually took place. So most of them don't actually hit the headlines. This weekend alone, we've had, I think, you know, three or four already that haven't actually made The Democrats realise that they have to uh, attempt to do something, even even if that means sort of tweaking around the edges, working on the art of compromise, given what's happened in in terms of the filibuster rule in the Senate. And, you know, the, the sense is that something, something is better than nothing. So we'll see how that plays out. That was Farah Thomason, the US correspondent for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, breaking it down for us. And look, Tom, I don't think Australians will ever understand the obsession with the Second Amendment, you know, because when you look back at the 18th century, there are a whole bunch of things people thought were a good idea at the time that we now know are batshit crazy, like owning humans as slaves and putting them in chains. That was the done thing and, and, and you know, enshrined in law and considered a good thing. Um, and I just hope that this time round that it's not the same doomed dance of legislation that really ends up nowhere. You know, I've just written a book about fundamentalist Pentecostals. This mm. feels like a, a fundamentalist approach where you have these simplistic binaries and you won't walk away from them at all that any any backward step is seen like a complete slippery slope towards um, destroying your principles when really we're talking about just moving the needle in a direction towards safety. In the meantime, there will be more children and more innocent people shot dead. It's the brutal reality. Tomorrow on The Briefing, concerns about the way we use animals in our medical testing regime. Listener.